Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Margaret Yeager, who is a medical anthropologist uh, working within a business context, which is unusual for this podcast. And she's working uh, in the research department at the Social Fund Vienna Education Center, where she's building a research team. Also an an international lobbyist for medical anthropology and an educator of, of health professionals across the world. So Margaret, thanks for joining today. Would you mind telling everybody, you know, a little bit about how you first got interested in anthropology? Thank you for the invitation, Matt. Yeah, of course. Um, So I'm a working class kid and I'm a first generation student. And um, when I flipped through the yellow book we had in those times to look at all the courses available, I came across cultural anthropology. um, And I found, oh, working with different cultures, traveling, this is the thing I want to do. Um, and I went on this journey and um, this was a very classical education. We had only one course where somebody um, did a seminar on happiness and health. And this was super interesting because she had uh, research about uh, patients with heart transplants and how medicine looks at the medical technical aspect and how anthropology comes in and said, but look, guys, this is a heart. This is the, a symbol. In, in the human body, it's the organ with the strongest symbolic meaning. And this was fascinating. Um, I went later on my master's doing research in Brazil, but in the field of development corporations, and then started in my PhD going into medical anthropology. Um, later, I joined this crowd of unemployed people with a PhD, getting a job in an NGO, working with migration and health um, as a project manager and started teaching actually because we were asked to and um, I went into academia teaching in public health and uh, later in psychology and medicine and um, I've left academia a year ago. Um, I still teach health professionals around the world with a lot of pleasure and a lot of passion I think. Um, but now I'm building up a research team at um, this education center, and we do research in care studies. So this is the, the theoretical framework for us, but it's on the interface between non-academic nursing and care professions and the practice. So it's deeply applied anthropology we're working on. And um, you may imagine building up a research team um, does not only mean to start doing research, but involves a lot of 
organizational aspects, a lot of networking, organizing events that people get aware of what you do, kind of all these things around as well. And that's a big pleasure for me. So I'd love to dig into some of those organizational aspects you just mentioned, but before getting there, so you made the comment about, you know, you uh, forget your exact wording, but you like, you know, you joined the the, the ranks of uh, PhDs without a job, something to that effect you said. And so why don't you, you know, that's um, in the U.S. that's sort of a growing concern, but why don't you help contextualize that statement in the context, you know, of, of maybe Europe broadly or, or more specifically, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, anthropology is a very small discipline in Austria and Austria is a very small country in comparison to the U S or many other countries. Therefore the value of anthropology and especially of medical anthropology, let's talk about this is not that known in the country. And therefore it's, harder to get into business. But on the other side, as the country is small, there are not that many postdoc opportunities. And I've been abroad a lot of time during masters and PhD, so I wanted to stay in my home country. And um, working in migration health is one area where you find quite a lot of anthropologists um, because you need our knowledge and you need our skills and they can be very much of use in this field. And um, we are very small countries with uh, a huge cultural and ethnic diversity. So um, it's one of the fields where, where you might find a job. And um, for me, anthropology and especially medical anthropology, as I came to the end of my PhD, was I want to do something for society. I want to work in applied anthropology. Um, the, the glass ivory tower of academia, of academic anthropology, would have been the wrong place for me because um, that's too theoretical. And for me in those times, and I think still today, it doesn't bring the benefit for society as it could bring into. And say in Austria specifically, do you see, is there any trend of anthropologists going into, you know, other business sectors, like especially how tech is popular? Um, is there any you know, is there any emerging trends like that? There is not a small number of uh, people who have a bachelor's in, um, so a bachelor degree in anthropology and leave academia. And uh, they tech is, is getting bigger and bigger. Um, and we have a start art, I won't say call it a culture because we are a very small country. But yeah, there are ways, but in general, it's very difficult. And it's, Probably the need is not to use anthropology as a keyword to search for a job, but um, use for social scientists, data analysts, different words, and, and then later explain, oh, what anthropology can add um, in specific to a job description or to a task that should be carried out. It's, it's very tricky. We are a small community of medical anthropologists. We're all com connected well and exchange information and knowledge. So based on that network, maybe tell us a little bit more. Did that factor into you finding the role that you're in? I would say yes, because um, that there is a very small network we created, which is not visible anywhere. Um, it's called Viennese Dialogues of Medical Anthropology and uh, was founded 13, 11 years ago. And we are basically a group of 
20 to 50 anthropologists um, who are not only working in academia, but working for Doctors Without Borders, working as a nurse, working as a midwife, working in different institutions. And what really um, motivated us to found such a small group, it's very open and it's unstructured, is that we can support each other. Because many of us, and I think that's crucial, uh, work alone as an anthropologist, as a social scientist in business, in any kind of business, in our uh, context in healthcare or education in health, and there is nobody to discuss with. Like nobody where you can ask something about theory or something about methods. And our group now is um, something like uh, it's not a closed circle, but it's a circle. We have a mailing list, that's all we have. And you can ask questions, and we have meetings, we present each other our works. And um, it turned out to be very useful for. Um, such a small discipline in such a small country to bring people together and um, feel a kind of connection and and be able to develop further our works in using medical anthropology concepts and theories and applying our methods and not feeling that lonely uh, as you would feel sometimes. Um, Because as you have heard, I'm sure several times in all the other podcasts, as an anthropologist, you, you come to the business world and you speak a language and they speak a different language. And it's normally the anthropologist, the alien who comes in and has to adapt to the other context and has to learn the other's language. And then it's some sometimes very comfortable and um, you feel good when you come to your own circle and you can speak the anthropological language and everybody understands you without explaining anything or without changing a jargon to be understood. And so when you came into your organization, I know you said you're building a research team. So were you, you know, were you researcher number one? Uh, Yes, I am researcher number one, like in the context of having this job description. And uh, it's also special because we are by definition, a qualitative research team. Because we have the great pleasure that there is a whole statistics department in another team that helps us to design mixed method studies. So we are allowed to be the qualitative experts only. Of course, we have quantitative knowledge, but we are these experts. We are free persons and the others join us when we need the help or when we think it's worth to design mixed method studies or to do anything together where we need numbers or when they need something going deeper, which you can do with qualitative methods. And so then maybe we can get into a little bit uh, more on the organization and the role itself. And again, I want to come back to those organizational issues such as the need to build a team. But before getting there, could we just unpack, you know, what it is that you're you're doing a little bit more? So, you know, what tell us a little bit more about what the research is in support of. Our research basically supports the improvement of the courses we offer and also in the future the practice for non-academic nurses and care assistants and care professionals. Um, So we pick up research topics basically within the organization or sometimes within cooperation with our partners, um, which is a local university for applied sciences and Uh, the local main hospital owner, that is the city government of Vienna. And um, 
what what we do is then um, whatever we research should have an impact sooner or later within the organization. Um, we have a clear vision uh, what what we can do for the organization, but of course it needs time to build up when you come to an organization where there was no research department or where um, basic quantitative feedback questionnaires were used for some evaluations, but where nobody had the time to look deeper into some aspects. And therefore, um, building it up also means um, telling people a lot and <laughs> repeat and repeat what research can bring in as benefit. And um, I have to say two of us are also um, teachers. So we are able to support the teachers of the education center. We are researchers, but we are teachers with a long teaching experience in health education, um, in academic professions, but it's for some aspects, it's, it's the same. So we can offer them like, okay, didactics or uh, when they write their own master thesis because they do some specializations or whatever. So this kind of support is important to offer as well. And um, I am in education since very long and um, it's bringing together like both sides of me as person, the one who likes to be a teacher, but not always standing in front of a class and, and um, dealing with students, but supporting colleagues to do well their job. So you touched there on you know, a little bit about what you need to do to get buy-in, essentially, you know, a lot of explaining and a lot of repeating. Tell us a little bit more about some of the struggles you faced and, and of course, how you're overcoming them as this sort of researcher, one, you know, building a new research team. So when you build up a qualitative research team, of course, um, in many organizations, um, they are used to numbers and statistics. And sometimes this can be done very fast. And um, you have to create awareness and an idea of what does it mean to research qualitatively? And what does it need to go deeper? Because it's not only it takes you probably longer to get the data, but also you need some more time for data analysis. And what we had, for example, as a big challenge at the beginning, um, I didn't have the software I needed. So there was no data analysis software. There was no transcription software. Um, then there was no uh, literature database software for literature organization. All these things took a long time because when an organization does not know about the importance of these tools and they cost because you need... Uh, well, we in healthcare, data protection is really important. And the European law is very strict. So we cannot use free versions of something because then our data might go anywhere and that's too dangerous. So um, what, what I can, can really lobby for is that you need include these aspects when you build something up new and create people's awareness. This is the tools we need. People who do statistics need a statistics program. They need sometimes people who type in questionnaires or whatever, and we need other stuff. And this stuff costs money, and this stuff has licenses. They need to be renewed every year. Um, and this was something that was really a challenge at the beginning to tell them, no, it's not optional. I really need that. And then you have an IT department who has no experience with such licenses, 
they're not, they're not complicated, you know, but you need to update them. They, they have a different scheme, what they're used to. So including these things was, was tiring sometimes and type part of this bureaucratic aspects of building up uh, something new in an organization that is not used to something of this scale. You may maybe building on that a bit. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the process of finding other researchers and hiring and building and training a team. Yeah, this is was uh, for me a very big pleasure because I was allowed to reach out to my network and um, I found somebody who wanted to join my team, whom I knew since longer and with whom I was working in another context. Um, and uh, we then split the job in, in two positions of, of part-time jobs. And we were two senior researchers, so we said, okay, the third person could be a junior researcher because then we give somebody a chance to learn research, not from scratch, because the person came with a master's, uh, which is important because... Um, I was a methods trainer for many years and I love methods, but what I didn't want to was training somebody from the really serial level in qualitative methods. We said we have a basic requirement and this is somebody with a training in this, this and that. And from this point on, we can train the person and this is what we are doing. Um, so I started and half a year later came the other two persons. And since then, um, we are building up the team and working together and the junior scholar gets more experience. Um, but I, I would say this is also a point that you need to think of when you work in an ed education center and we work for a governmental organization. I see it as one of our duties to support somebody younger, to build up a career, to build up uh, competences, skills, knowledge. Um, and I would say we have the time to give this to the colleague and, and help her to develop her own uh, skills um, to become a professional researcher. Well, speaking of methods, so tell us a little bit about how the rest of the organization is responding to, to the introduction of qualitative methods. Part of the organization is very open because um, let's frame it there are, when there are some problems in which numbers do not help you to explain why this happens, um, then this is the moment for a qualitative researcher. And um, this is helpful because we can clearly point out and tell them, look, yeah, for example, every education center, yeah, every training has dropouts. This is normal because pe things happen to people. Um, for very different reasons. But um, you need to know why they drop out because you need to find out is this because of problems on the organizational level or is this due to personal reasons that we could address or is this to other aspects that has have nothing to do um, in to, with the other two points. And um, for this, you need qualitative research. You, you need, or you need to guide them how to collect the data, for example, Somebody says, I'm dropping off, getting a phone call and need to ask certain questions and need to take notes in a certain way that we are able to analyze them later. So this is kind of um, in-house training and also learning by doing from our side because um, you don't know what, what you expect, you know, when you come new to organization and have to build up 
something from scratch, which is, there's a big difference. If you have a new organization that decides to embrace research from start on, or you have an organization that is 12 years old in our case, or yeah, more or less 12 years, and then says we need researchers. Um, this is a very different um, point. And um, I, I would love to say every organization, organization needs a researcher, but I think that's not, unre- it's not realistic. But um, knowing where to go when you need some insights, this is already a start. And um, anthropologists um, are experts in coming into a new place and catching quickly what's going on and making some recommendations um, that may improve uh, things in your business. Um, I think I think this is something very special to us anthropologists. And in healthcare, it's special to medical anthropologists that we are very well trained to go into hospital and figure out very quickly what's going on here, what might go wrong, and what could we suggest because we have in mind other we have in mind our theories other experience we have in mind good practice probably and then you're able to react quickly um i don't know about other business fields but it's about healthcare sometimes it's about life and death and um those uh, organizations cannot wait a year to implement something when you have some recommendations so um rapid assessment methods for example rapid inquiry um, are one possibility or one package of methods always carried out in a team. This is really important. You can't do rapid you can't do rapid assessments with a single person because this is the, the, the quality assurance in the package of rapid assessment procedures developed by the WHO decades ago that you have a team to go in there. And then you can be very fast and very efficient to help an organization to improve something or even to find out what's going wrong. Let's start with this and then how can we change something? So, you know, in there you said how medical anthropology is a, is a natural fit for the healthcare sector, which of, of course makes you know, perfect sense. But I'm wondering, how do you see your medical anthropology education contributing to the more you know, organizational issues that you're facing, such as, you know, hiring, building a team, training, uh, interfacing with other departments in which you need to, you know, convince them maybe of your value and help them see, you know, what, uh, why you're doing certain things, right? So like, from that kind of perspective, has your training contributed anything unique that maybe, you know, somebody like myself wouldn't be thinking about not having that background? That's a wonderful question because I think there are two two aspects. One is no, not at all. My training did not contribute to learn me specific things because academia is to produce stuff for its own world, for getting an academic as well. Very often, especially in the social sciences or in, in, in humanities, you know, um, and therefore, there was not a lot of focus at all. And um, what is fundamentally in business world is interprofessional collaboration. Um, not only in the in the healthcare sector where I am, where intercultural uh, interprofessional collaboration means a doctor with a nurse, with a physiotherapist, with an occupational therapist working together. But 
I see interprofessional collaboration among all professions possible. Um, what we have as anthropologists, I think, is our reflexivity, the competence to reflect, um, our sensitivity to human behavior. Um, what we were trained for is to go in somewhere and observe this participant observation. And as we were trained for this, you can use this tool everywhere and in any business world to learn what's going on. And this is the first step. Um, and I think this, this is what, what the anthropological thing is in the business world, that we have learned to figure out quickly what's going on here and who is the leader of a group and you know, who is the one who is not allowed to raise the voice or, or whatever is going on in a group, in an environment. We have learned to figure this out and then plan further. I think what is a beautiful thing we have learned is developing a research process and being flexible in this process because a research process can be very similar to a project management process. And not all project management processes are flexible, but would need flexibility because in project, something might happen that screws up all your plans. An anthropologist is used to that. This is go to field work and you should have a plan B because what if? This is what we, I think we're really well trained for. So um, in this case, it is. It is the methods training that is, that is really strong and good. Um, what, what is missing, of course, but I think that's is natural. And this is something I've learned because I'm training other anthropologists to teach in healthcare since some time and I'm lobbying for that. What we don't learn, what you need to get for any specific context by your own then is Okay, I'm going to teach like I did in Egypt. How is the healthcare system in Egypt? Um, how is the ethnic diversity? How is the religious diversity? How healthcare is financed? What about the medical pluralism? All these things you need to know to be a good teacher. And this is something that any anthropologist is also very good in it, to get quickly into something deep. So we have learned to have a holistic view on the world. And if there's a business organization, it's a hospital, let's say, and um, we come with a plan. What do we need to know? Um, where do we need to observe somebody doing what to get a clear idea of what's going on here? And this is something I think very positive of being an anthropologist and something that, that helps you to carry out quickly whatever you are asked for. And so in there, you mentioned lobbying again, and I know I said it at the outset. So you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing in that space? Yeah, of course. So um, I was the single medical anthropologist teaching occupational therapists, teaching in public health, and I searched for people who do the same, being an anthropologist, but teaching in health. And in 2015, we founded um, a special interest group within the EASA. Um, this group was closed in January 2023 because um, a new group developed, and I'm also part of this. This is inside the Society of Medical Anthropology um, in the American context. 
and it's called Special Interest Group Health Professions Education. And here we want to bring together people from all over the world who are anthropologists and who teach whatever in medical, edu in medical education. Because we need to be aware of anthropologists are not always asked in the first place to teach anthropology content, but to teach qualitative research methods. And this is a door opener for many people to get into medical schools, to get into nursing schools, to get into training in hospitals, because somebody needs research skills. And therefore, um, this is something where today, or since today, but since some years, I'm using LinkedIn um, to lobby for it, to show why medic and medical anthropology is needed to train and to uh, offer continued education to health professionals all over the world and how important it is to have local trainers. Um, I did a whole project to train people in Egypt. I am not the appropriate person to teach in Egypt. I'm a white Austrian European woman and um, this needs to be done by local people who speak the local Arabic, um, who, who know the local culture. I think this is really important that um, we, we have an, a reflection on um, how easy it is to fly around the world and train somebody somewhere. But um, then we are reproducing colonial structures. Then they, they, we, we need to, we don't know about the local conditions and training the trainers is for me the way To, to support others and to help to create local workforce, which will be much better able to teach in Egypt than I am because I don't speak Arabic. And so uh, I know you already mentioned LinkedIn, but uh, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, where would be a good place? I would say this would be LinkedIn because this is the easiest way. Well, Margaret, uh, thanks for coming on and taking the time. I appreciate hearing about how you're applying medical anthropology in this business context. Thank you very much for the invitation, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at mattarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.